I'm Angela Kenneke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today because he helped me and my family after the loss of Emily. Mark Vandebrock is a board-certified music therapist and thanatologist, which is a death and grief expert. He is a speaker and author. Mark facilitates grief education support groups for adults and groups specifically for those experiencing child and infant loss. He combines his knowledge of grief and music to assist individuals in traveling through their grief journey. Well, Dr. Mark Vandebrock, I want to thank you for being here with me today. And thanks for the invitation. I'd like to start off by talking about loss, because immediately we know that the death of a loved one is a loss. But we all face losses along this road or this path in life. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've discovered or learned about loss and coping with loss in general? We, like you said, experience losses every single day to some degree. And I define loss more than death. If you lose a home, there can be a loss. If you lose uh, a limb, there's a loss, a mastectomy, anything that you deem important and that was taken away from you, that is a loss, and that's what I specialize in. That is the word Berafian, B-E-R-A-F-I-A-N. It's an old English word that was discovered in the year 310, roughly, and it means to rob to be taken away from. As time advanced, that word evolved into the word bereavement. So anything that's taken away from you can be considered a loss. It's so interesting that you say that because I met with you, my entire family met with you after we lost Emily. And when I spoke about her, I said I was robbed of my daughter. And then I met you and you told me the meaning of the root of the word bereavement, and I just thought, how how interesting. That is exactly how I felt, like I was Absolutely. robbed. And I think when uh, we may lose a marriage, we're Correct. robbed of what we thought our future was going to be. The relationship, the expectation, um, anything you can think of psychologically, that connection, and emotionally, physically, all those components of our being will experience that loss, a loss of a pet. Yeah, loss of a pet is just so And it's a profound thing, but our, unfortunately, our society is very quick to say, well, you can always go get another one. Do you think it's kind of that whole American spirit, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, move on, push through it, that stoic, maybe Nordic, uh, Germanic (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Work it out. And just move on and just yeah. push it somewhere else. And then it comes out in other ways, right? Absolutely. I think basic psychology 101. Yeah. And what I have experienced and what I, when I lecture and speak with the, the public, I have concluded that there are thousands of ways we grieve, but there are four major ways we grieve. The first way is physiologically. Well, our, again, our society says suck it up, deal with it, move on. 
And so we get pretty complacent with that and say, okay, well, just I won't talk about it. So I'll just suck it up inside. But then the physical, physiological aspect happens. I'll get more headaches. My sleep will suck. Appetite's all over the place. Heartburn, ulcers. Um, there's even research on the broken heart syndrome. I want to hear more about that because I'm just going to share with you that after Emily died, I felt it very much physically. I mean, I felt physically ill, sick to my stomach. Correct. I couldn't eat. And I and still I still have some of these symptoms also that my heart physically hurts. Like I feel like I know I'm not having a heart attack. My my blood pressure is great. I'm super healthy. I you know all that. But it just and sometimes I even have to put my hand over my heart because it hurts so much. There can be palpitations. There can be so many different things that happen. But typically the bottom half of your heart with a broken heart syndrome um, kind of I don't want to say explodes, but ruptures. And if people are interested, the Japanese discovered this quite some time ago. And, and more, I see more and more of it tell nowadays. Me, tell me exactly what, what happens. What it's is just that? The, the heart breaks. That, that's There's probably no better explanation of that. Your heart is broken. And we have found statistically that the first week after a death, I think there's close to a 10% likelihood of the like a spouse, for example, if you lose your husband, by the end of the first week, your chances of death is quite high. And you you see that happening. I've done stories. Yes. I did a story on an older couple who'd been together for sixty or seventy years, and they just died one within hours of each other. Yeah, it's it's not uncommon in, in at least in my world. And even by the end of the th- first month, there's still a three percent likelihood of that syndrome still being there. Wow. So it's something for people just to be aware of. It's not uncommon to feel that emotional pain and, and bring it into the physical because our society doesn't want to see us. We don't talk about this. We don't talk about no. this. Because I felt all this happening to me, but nobody said, oh, that's normal. You know, they want to give me medication right away. And I, I you know, people may disagree with me, and obviously so, but what's the medication going to do? Mask it, right? Yeah. And it's going to come out Anx- later. Yeah, you have anxiety. You have all those sort of stuff. Right. Hor- uh, I had horrible anxiety, and I don't typically suffer from anxiety. But that's uh, – we need to do grief work. And th- there's no better explanation to it. We have to put time and energy into grieving. There's a term called amelioration of grief, and it means that grief takes time. And it will get better only if you put work into it. So what do you mean by work? How do we work on grief? We have to understand the complexities of that grief, what that person meant to us or what that house or that dog, understanding the connections. And what I have found to be very helpful is the way to relocate with them, to move that loss, that 12 inches from your head to your heart. Because when we carry that picture, I have people take a picture of their loved ones and keep it in their heart. Yeah, maybe we can go through that exercise at sure. the end of this podcast. Sure. And uh, if people want to stay and keep listening on it, because you did this with my entire family, this Correct. little exercise about holding this image of the loved one in your heart. And right. I'll have you go yeah, through that when sure. we're done talking here. But when we, when we carry them there, then we'll find peace. Because what I inevitably try to do is help people reconnect with their loved ones, not in a supernatural way. Not like voodoo but or spiritual, no, spiritual or but mediums I, or things like right. that. Right. I look at it that 
if we connect with them, if we really listen to our heart, we know that their presence is there. We I can would agree with them. that. I hear my daughter's voice, and sometimes I think I'm crazy. But no, you're, you're, that's great. Because you're going to hear what they're going to say. If there's questions, unresolved differences, whatever might be going on, you still can have that conversation. In, in all my years of work, I have found that we miss our loved ones physically being here. But we miss talking to them more than anything else in the world. We miss hearing their voice, hearing what they say, voice. what they do. If we really, truly listen, we will know. What happens to the brain when you experience sudden loss? Because I felt like I had almost like a brain injury. I couldn't remember things. Everything seemed fuzzy. Sure. It's, it's slowly, and I don't. Even, I still am having a few memory issues, but it's slowly coming back. Well, that's my segue to my second point of how we grieve. So thank you. <laughs> the second way, second way is cognitively. So we have both hemispheres in our brain, but in the middle there's a connecting tissue called the corpus callosum. And we have found in research that every second of the day we have about 200 synapses that fire back and forth. But when we have a loss, that middle area actually becomes cloudy. And those synapses don't fire normally. What in the world did I do with my car keys? What did I do with the phone? I was supposed to do something I can't remember. And people generally tell me, oh, I feel like I'm going crazy. You're not. What you're doing is you're grieving. The, the we brain don't have function. time to stop. Society, our, our job, I mean, my, my employer actually was very understanding. But even so, I, I maybe you almost need a whole year just to stop, right? I, I mean, you know what? I would advocate that. But again, I... Not very practical. It's, it's right. not going to be. But I look at it from a, a different standpoint. What if, you know, I work with nurses that have experienced the death, the death of a family member. But what if there's a mess up in medications? Their concentration's not there. Right. We're, we're giving a, th- typically companies give a three-day bereavement, give or take a little How bit. How do you feel about that? That's a whole different podcast, probably. Right, we could just talk about what needs to change. <laughs> but I think our grief actually does not start until about four to six weeks after the death. Because we're in shock. We're numb. And right. I do come from a faith-based background, and I do believe God gives us numbness to survive. We're able to get up, put the coffee on, Maybe take it's a like shower. You're walking through like mud or something, right. but you're just doing it. You're functioning. Yeah. But after that time, and when people start stop coming over or bringing something over to eat, then all of a sudden that awareness that that death happened, that then is when we start to grieve. You know, if you have surgeons, or maybe they lost their wife and. You're expected to have surgery. Well, they take three days off because of the death. I mean, seriously, how comfortable do you feel? Right. It just They're not really physically capable to perform the way they did before this horrible, shocking thing happened. Right. So that's the, the problem with, I feel anyway, what happens with our society. We're so quick to generate a, you know, the work will cure everything, and it doesn't. It can help provide a different perspective. But it doesn't cure it. I mean, grief isn't, to be honest with you, you will grieve the rest of your life. I think that's true. I think I realize that. It's not and a it, very pleasant thought. But you know what? It can be okay. How? Because when you do grieve, you know that the love and the connection's there. There are over 6,500 people that die every day in the United States. Are we grieving their loss? No. 
because we don't know them. But if you generate, one death affects a minimum of 128 people. And so if you do the multiplication, there's roughly 83 million people each year that are impacted by a death. It's a lot of people. And you wonder why concentration's not there. You wonder why... Mistakes are made. and Yeah. yeah. And it's not an excuse. It's, it's part of the, the whole phenomenon that happens with grief. The other thing I've noticed, and I was just talking to a young woman who lost her mother, and we are both about the same number of months out. Her mother died a couple months before Emily. And she said that I that whole first year, I think I was just in shock, and now I'm in the second year, and it's so much worse. And I said, I think in the second year you start to get depressed. I think you kind of fall into a depression. Do you think that's true? I, I think it can. It can go that pathway. The suggestion that I might give would be is we, we need to do some continuing work on the grief to get that understanding. And she's not getting much help from anybody. And so that's why things can get more intense as it goes along. So just trying to manage it on your own. Right. So in, in my research, I mean, this is good or bad or indifferent, but I have found that over 70% of addictions are grief-based. Well, sure, you're looking to drown out your sorrows. It's cliche, but it's true. It is so true. Be it narcotics, be it alcohol, whatever it is. Food, lots of things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll do everything I can not, not to, to deal with it. it. So is it best? So I think sometimes we're so afraid to feel our emotions when, they're, when we actually are in the middle of that wave of emotion if we just ride it. Instead yeah. of running away from it. Now, I, I'm not saying I do that perfectly because I don't, mm-hmm. but I try to be conscious of it. I, I think that's important. And again, a, a sidebar to this, too, is not not everyone experiences the same thing and this grieves the same way. That and is it, so true because I, I have a lot of friends that are moms now. I always say I'm part of a club, didn't want to join, mm-hmm. of mothers who've lost children or parents in general. And I know there's just such a wide range of response just yeah. among us mothers. We all understand each other. We all understand maybe more than anybody else would what we're going through. But yet we all react so differently. Yeah. And that's I, – I look at it historically. When you look at your ancestors, when you look at your mother and father and the potential way that they grieved, they model for us. This is how you, you grieve. And so we copy that, and that we think that's normal. Again, from the, the thanatology world, which I'm a part of, uh, it's a grief education, grief educator research um, person. But and thanatology that's means what, grief educator case, researcher, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. We find that, again, we think that's the right way. The only segue would be that if it's causing some damage, if it's causing concentration problems, if decisions are being poor, uh, different symptoms that happen with that, that's what we have to be aware of. Because again, everybody will lose someone in their life. That's kind of a given. Right. And a pet can be just as important sometimes to someone as a person. (laughs) And and side on that is that most of our world says, get over it. I mean, our our whole culture says, go get another dog, go get another cat. Look at the Humane Society. I love the Humane Society, but I go there and oh, just pick out another one. Or have but, an, if you have, lose a small child or an infant, have another child. Oh, gosh, I could write a book on people's dumb statements. Yeah, and it's I, people don't. I, you, have to, you have to be forgiving of people, right? Because right? they and don't they try know. And, they're, they're 
Yeah, absolutely. They're trying to say something to fix it. And grief is an experience that we need to go through. We can't really fix it. We need to understand it. So do you think some people get stuck in the middle of it? Yes. Why does that happen? Because they don't know. They don't find any hope that things are going to get better. Right. I think I know a couple of women I feel are, are stuck right now. And they just feel like their world ended when their child ended. Yeah. And they may have other things to live for. Maybe somebody on the outside can say, hey, you've got Perspective. a spouse, you've got another child or whatever it might be. But, but yet they, are, they seem stuck. Yeah. How do, how do they get unstuck? I, I think they might need some guidance. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody saying, you and know. And maybe intense guidance, too. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, again, everybody rides at a kind of a little bit different. But I think if they're giving the, the tools, and that's what I'm an advocate of is educating people. When I see people, I'm not therapizing. There, there's no way in the world that I'm going to do. You're not a therapist. I, I'm an educator. I want For me, it's giving the people the tools to, to use and to give them statistics, to give them an awareness. Where a, a therapist would look at the analytical aspect of things and saying, you know, the rationale behind certain things. So it's a, it's a spin on words in some area. But as an educator, when I, a parent will call me and say, well, my son lost his best friend, and but he doesn't want to see a therapist. Yeah, that's pretty typical of young men, right? Yeah. Um, well, I said, well, weakness. good thing because I'm an educator. And just tell them I'm going to show them some tools. Mm-hmm. And it, it works a lot. It's a softer approach versus therapy for a lot of people means is a negative thing. And it's not. You're not trying to get people to spill their guts about their emotions. No, no. I'm there to ride this with them. So how can we help someone who is grieving? I think one of the biggest things is having the support. And oftentimes when, and maybe this has happened to you, maybe not, but oftentimes friendships will change after a death. I think that's very true. And people don't know what to do. They're actually experiencing the same loss. They probably knew that person the same way to a degree. But what do I say? And all it is is going to be a negative down sad. I don't want to experience that. I'm already sad. So all these things go through the head. And so I'm going to find happier people. Right. And people so, don't necessarily want to be around people right, who are grieving. Right. And so it, it's neither good or bad. But other people I have found then start to step in and say, you know what, Angela, I'm going to be there for you. No matter what, I'm going to hear your stories. I'm not going to fix it, but I'm there to listen to it. Right. And I, when I worked with families that have lost a child, they, I said, each of them will grieve differently. Not that it's a right or wrong. That gets me to my next question because I know of some people that have um, split up after losing a child. It seems to be pretty common. Maybe you have the statistics on that? Um, actually, it's probably less than you think. Oh, my that's guess, good. My guess is there's probably some issues prior to the child's and death. And this brings it out. And this magnifies it more. I can see even, I believe my marriage is solid, but I can see even in uh, the way that my husband grieves compared to how I grieve. Right. I was the mother. I carried this child. I gave birth to this child. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's different. It's different. and it's, Not good or I, bad, but not, No, and you're absolutely right. It's like a miscarriage. But then when st- someone doesn't grieve the way you do or necessarily want to talk all the time, 
about it. Maybe one person wants to talk all the time and one person doesn't. Or Or if you have a stereotype, and far for me to say this, but, you know, the old outage of men and women grieve differently. We... We don't necessarily are grieve. trained not to show their emotions, well, don't you yeah, think? Yeah, that's a stereotype. But I think uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Ken Doka, came up with the phrase uh, in, in intuitive grief and instrumental grief. They're, they're beautiful terms. Intuitive grief is kind of the sensitivity. You know, the old stereotype is the woman would call her, her friend and they go out for coffee and they talk, which then means guys don't do such a thing. Or the instrumental grief is, I'm going to go out and bail hay. I'm going to go fix the garage. I'm going to do something physical. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean only males do that. So I, I want to be cautious of that because it used to be that men and women grieve differently. and Because of social norms. Yeah. And I, I don't necessarily believe that anymore. We just do it differently. And it's okay. Right. And, and with fathers or mothers and fathers that lose a child. From an adult child to an infant, um, particularly with miscarriages and stillbirths, I suggest to people that the, the female has a very intimate connection with that child where the, the father has the hope of that child. I'm not saying the mother doesn't either, but, but you get to experience the movement. You feel that connectedness. The guy doesn't. And so when you have a miscarriage, well, the guy, well, you're ready to try again? Right, because he's not physically connected in the right. same way. Right. Yeah. So there's, and I simply say to people, you're going to grieve differently. Guys tend to, typically tend to want to fix it. And I don't want to see you in pain. I don't want to see you sad. That hurts me. So I want to fix it for you. What's, since there's no avoiding it, I always say there's no way around it. You have to just go through it. Great. Correct, correct. How do you incorporate that into your life in a healthy way? I, I encourage people to give indicators. Like if you come home from work, and I used to think candles, but you don't want to do that because you don't want to leave a candle burning. But if a light is on, say in the bedroom, but nobody's in there, that might be an indication that I'm having a crappy day. And so... The partner would say, okay, I'm aware. This is a cue to me. And I don't have to say a word. I can be present. And to be present is so powerful. Those are some pretty important skills I think people need to learn because I don't yeah. think people automatically are going to do that. No, it's it developed a, a skill, so to speak. But And vice versa. If you're having a bad day and we don't have words enough to fix it. No, I, I don't think words... But we can be present and hear. And I'm, I love words. I mean, that's what yeah. I do for a living. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking to you, and I write, and I report stories, and I tell people stories, but it goes beyond words. Absolutely. Grief. Absolutely. It's a connection. So if someone is stuck, though, is there, other than going for more intense counseling, I mean, is there anything else? I, I suggest finding ways to connect with them through memories. I encourage people to to do something in honor of them. To that's build. helped me. You know, that's helped me channeling my grief through the nonprofit of Emily's yeah. Hope and trying to raise funds to help other people. Then if I can take the focus off of myself. And that's beautiful. And put it on helping other people. Yeah, that's, that's I'm what I I'm not saying would, everybody has to do that. No, but there's something like that 
It, it might be um, I've had people do trap shoots. I've had people do bowling tournaments. I've had people something to do in honor of their loved ones. And maybe they can contribute that to give to somebody else. The most bittersweet moment I had was when we finally got Emily's artwork up in the Everest Gallery here at our local art gallery, the Washington Pavilion. And it was just so beautifully displayed. And I walked through there and I just thought, oh, her artwork is on display. It was very sad that she didn't get to experience this moment. I got to experience it, but she didn't get to. Maybe she did. Maybe she did. I mean, my you know, my hope is that she spirit her spirit was with us, but it was very bittersweet. But it was also just that moment. I just burst into tears and sat in the middle of her artwork in this art gallery. And I just think that was a gift. Beautiful. And so trying for me also gratitude, I find, is a... Yeah. I suggest to people, and I've been criticized with this too, but I have found it so effective that I encourage people to talk to their loved ones. Why and, would you be criticized for that? Like, um, the because, criticism? well, there's it can be like some psychosis that goes on. Oh. There can be other, some delusional things that can happen. Especially and, people do it in their heads anyway. Well, I think so. <laughs> but what I encourage people to do is actually to talk to their loved ones on paper. For example, so like journaling. well, I don't call it journaling because journaling is psychologically based. Mm-hmm. What we miss is having that conversation. So what I want you to do is to talk to her on paper. I did that on the notes in my phone once. I, I would again <laughs> suggest I'm just using it as an example. Yeah. Hey, Emily, I met this crazy doctor that wants me to talk to you. So here it goes. I want it to be random. I don't want punctuation. I don't want capitalization. I don't even want you to think about what you're saying. I just want you to talk on paper. And how does that help? What For me, what I see happening is I'll have them write, then I want them to put it away. Go get a cup of coffee, something to drink, and then come back and read it to themselves. Then I want you to rip it up because the paper, in essence, becomes a filter. And you get to pick the memories you want to put around that picture in your heart. And when you get that frame completed, you'll have peace because you're carrying them with you. Right. And I think that's what having peace with an untimely, you know, sometimes if you expect a death. I mean, I, we just lost a close family friend a couple months ago, and I have a lot more peace with that because she was ready to go and she lived a full life. And, you know, mm-hmm. all the stereo- cliche things that you hear. But when it's an untimely death, I think finding peace with that. I think it takes time and work. I think people can understand it. I was able to chapter a book last summer called uh, Children Surviving Traumatic Death with uh, Jerry Cox and uh, Rob Stevenson. And I talk about the same thing, and and we all do as an association for death education and counselors. We just collaborate on certain events. But when we can understand what that loss meant to us, either the anticipatory loss or the sudden death, when we carry them in that different perspective, we will have peace. You know, their loss will be there. It's like a, you'll have a scar. Some people have used that analogy before. If you, if you cut your leg and you get the stitches, there most likely will be a scar. That's part of what grief is. There's going to be a scar. I always say we're all kind of the walking wounded. People will often say to me, oh, you look so great. I'll be like, well, the scars are on the inside. <laughs> yeah, well, so one of my patients a long time ago said, it's like if you cut off my right arm, that's what it feels like. Yeah. I thought of that when um, I had a friend when Emily was a baby. We had ba- had babies at the same time, and she lost her baby at about one and a half to a metabolic disorder. Mm. And I thought, 
if I would have lost Emily, then it would be like just chop because a baby feels like really part of your your appendage, your body. Yeah. And I felt like that would have been like chopping off my arm or something, you yeah. know, at the time. Yeah. And that's it's so true. That's the the pain. Mm-hmm. You still survive. Right. But your perspective has changed. And I can almost guarantee you, Angela, that your perspective of life has changed. Oh, it certainly has. And I think that that's a choice, too. So we can choose to either shut down and close down after our heart's been shattered or Mm -hmm. ripped open. I kind of think of it as being ripped open, the heart being ripped open. We can choose to shut down and, and sort of go into ourselves or we can choose to be more open-hearted and go outside of ourselves. Absolutely. And probably a more important follow-up to that would be, what would Emily want you to be doing? Right. Well, I just had someone say to me, if you're happy, she's happy. Which I think a lot of us think, I remember especially after she first died, the first time I ever, I just got off social media for several months. You know, as part of my job is being on social media too. And the first time I ever smiled for a picture felt like a betrayal. Yeah, it feels it's very common. Mm-hmm. Very common. And, and the we, first time I laugh or first I, I felt, oh, I'm doing something wrong. No, you're actually starting to have those wide range of emotions except for the, you know, we, we've been used to this down and sad. We recognize, oh, I guess I can, can have other. And you're not uh, betraying no. your loved ones by smiling. No. I think that's one of the fears, especially as a mom. You don't want people to think, oh, I'm happy now. My my child died, and I'm happy. No, no. and that would obviously for people send a wrong message, like, what's wrong with you, you know? Right. But it, it, when I kind of looked at my protocol, the four ways we grieve, the physical, the cognitive. Right. The, the, so we talked about the physical. We talked about the cognitive. What's the... The third is the spiritual. We question our belief. Yes. When, when Emily's robbed from you, you go, Why? You know, coming from a faith base, like for me, God, what's, why did you do this? What, what's the reason for this? Why? It certainly why? my faith. And why? Why? I was born and raised, you know, in a religion and Catholic church. Yeah. And it certainly has rocked my faith. And for me, that's why it's very important for people, people to recognize this is when people fall away from the faith the most or they get closer. And I always say in my human form, I have questions for God. When I see him, It'll probably be a different story. People get angry at God, though, don't well, you? Think? I think he can handle it, can he? If he knows what's going on. Or feel abandoned by God. Absolutely. Or question if there is even a God. Absolutely. You look at the, the Bibles filled with stories. Yeah. Job. I mean, you, you can go through the whole whole Bible and find so many stories. Those Job stories where they've lost, you know, more than one child. I've yeah. spoke, spoken um, to them on this podcast, and it's terrifying. Oh, it's and I have worked with that. I worked with a one of the reservations, a, a father, beautiful man that lost three sons to suicide. Oh my goodness! And the understanding why why we don't always understand, and that's when I go back to my conversation to. To get it from the inside out is what's so critical. Then rip it up and focus on the gifts that that child had. We can choose to focus on their death or we can choose to focus on their life. What do you think is going to be better? That's a really good point. I love that. Choose to focus on their life instead of on how they died. Right. A lot of what I'm talking about is about how Emily died because it's such a prevalent social issue right now. Absolutely. And I respect that. But it is hard. I mean, it is hard, and I don't always want. I don't want her. I when I talk about her, about it, I say, I don't want her to remember for how she died. I don't want her. I want her to remember for who she was and how she lived. And who makes the choice? 
So that's what I challenge people to look at. So the spiritual question is a huge, huge one. So how do people tend to resolve that, do you think? I think it's just having that conversation with God in prayer, whatever it might be from your whatever belief you believe in, is trying to understand what what's the rationale behind it. And I bet you anything, you probably won't know the answer. I think as a reporter, we always want to know all the answers to everything. Uh-huh. And I've been in this business long enough that the why is often not answered. So we may wonder, in fact, I was speaking to a couple of DCI agents once about a serial killer case. Why? Why would somebody do this? Well, I said, evil exists in the world. You know, that was their mm-hmm. answer. Because they don't, because we don't know the why. We don't know the why for some, or why somebody did what they did. Sometimes they don't even know why. No. And I think that to, to try to, we, I want to understand everything. I want to figure it all out. That's just the, the kind facts. of person I am. Yeah. And so to having to live with the not being able to understand why this had to happen the way it did. And that's again, comes back to circling again, is, is that what we need to focus on? Or do we need to focus on their life? It's just like the negative thought idea, right? Yeah. So these negative yeah. thoughts come into our brains. Do we, or do we need to let them go and, and think a more positive thought? That would be my hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're Instead not Instead of there. Fo- focusing on the why. It's like you will know forever that Emily died, right? Mm-hmm. But again, does that define who she is? Right. And I always do say I'm grateful for the 21 years that I had. And I, I, can, I would go I, through it all again to have those 21 yeah, years. Yeah, and if, if, you know, this scenario, if God gave you the choice, if you could have Emily for 21 years or none at all, what would you take? The 21 years. No Absolutely. Question, no doubt. If I, I work with a, a young woman that's lost a child that she had for a year, would you have, you know, if God gave you the choice of not having this child, and I've worked with people that are grieving not being able to have children. Right. That's a different kind of loss. It's a different kind of loss, but you still had that same question. Would I? What are the memories that your child gave you in that year? We always want more. That's true with everything, right? Mat- right. Materialistic things or whatever it might be. Yeah. Once as you have the thing, you know. As yeah. you become older and parents die, grandparents die, then you realize that you become an orphan. I had my aunt say that to me after my grandparents died. She felt like an orphan. And it's, it's, there's num- numerous books about that out there. Yeah. But that psychologically, it happens that way. There's yeah. questionings. And I'm the next generation. Holy cow. I know. And then pretty soon your time will be up. Right. So if I can spin back to the spirituality, there are actually two subcategories in this. One is anger and one is guilt. Anger comes out in one of two ways. We kind of get mad at the world or we get mad at ourselves. The anger I see frequently with people. They get more road rage or they get a lot of things going on. Well, you even look at the in the penal system. What percentage of those people have had a loss in their life? That's a very good point. So I'm going to be angry and take it out on others or myself. But what you're really telling me when I hear the word that I am angry, it circles back to my original word, baraffian. We feel robbed. Right, and who doesn't get angry when they're robbed? So what do we do with that? What do we do with it? We try to understand it. We try to reconnect. We try to focus on the gifts again of that relationship or whatever the scenario might be. That's what I try to help people, again, sort through that stuff. And the second part of this you said was guilt. Guilt. Guilt is the woulda, shoulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda, woulda. And that's really hard for parents. I've talked to a lot of parents who have had kids overdose. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the hardest things because we think 
we are all powerful, somehow we could have swooped in and saved our children if we just would have done this or if we just would have done this earlier or should have, would have, and could have, all those things. absolutely right. And the the downfall of that is I wish the word had never been invented. I think religion in its early existence developed the word to try to keep us in line. But what guilt is is one of the most damaging words because the recognition that I am not that powerful. I can't stop that speeding bullet. I can't stop that car from crashing in. I can't have that ability to be that knowledgeable. And so what you're really telling me, if that guilt is there, it comes back to my original word, Baratheon. We feel robbed. Let's deal with that feeling of being robbed. Let's talk about that grief. Let's talk about the sadness, the anger, whatever might be going on, because that's what you're really telling me. It's much easier for me to tell another mom when they say that kind of thing, like, oh, if only I would have not gone to the grocery store that day. Mm-hmm. It's a case of one mom that I know. If only I would have. And I say, well, that, that's ridiculous. It just would have happened in a different way, a different day. Or, you know, you couldn't control that. And, but it's harder for me to, to tell that to myself. It's easier for me on the, outs- on the outside than sure. someone to tell them that they shouldn't feel guilty, that they couldn't have done anything. Even if they would have done something different, they could have had the same outcome. It's much easier for me to say that than to say that to myself. So what I would challenge that with is that how is that helping you? Not not letting yourself off the hook, you mean? Yeah. Or being kinder to yourself? Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously Seriously, it you, I challenge people, <laughs> ask yourself that question. How is it helping you? That's a good, that's a good question. Because I can almost guarantee you it's not going to. So this is the, the, the anger and the guilt, and that's the third. The fourth is the emotional. That's the roller coaster ride. And those waves of grief. And that the I waves, about. yes, absolutely. You're up and down and spinning all around. What I try to help people do is redefine a different path and to look at that loss in a different way. Because that loss actually be, can be turned into gain if we look at the choosing to hold on to the, the memories we choose to keep. Do you think post traumatic growth applies to that? Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. It's a term I heard recently, and I kind of mm-hmm. liked it, so I'm yeah. kind of talking about it. It's that. just, it's understanding. I, th- I think that's what we really need to look at, is how do we understand it? So I, when I teach and when I lecture, I lecture in parables, so to speak. Some person I knew in the past really taught well with parables. So I thought, well, animals are quite... And <laughs> Jesus taught well with parables, yes. Yeah. So I thought, you know what? Animals are wonderful teachers. And I... Through my research, I've found animals. The first animal that helps me teach is a turtle. A turtle is a very unique animal. There's many types of turtles. There's painted turtles, mud turtles, sea turtles, snappers, you name them. The cousins, the tortoise, a very interesting animal. They can live up over 200 years old. But turtles are very sacred. They're sacred in the native culture as well as the Chinese culture. They're sacred because they're always in touch with the earth. They're always feeling. They're always sensing. And because of that, they tend to live a long time. Because they live a long time, they become wise. And with that wisdom comes prosperity. But when storms come, what do turtles do? They hide in their shells. Yes. And how does that relate to humans dealing with grief? They tend to go into themselves. and Yeah, and guess what? The grief never goes away. So if you find yourself pulling in, recognize the turtle is speaking. And nothing's going to change. Second animal that helps me teach is a bald eagle. What do you know of the bald eagle? Majestic, they're you know the symbol of our nation. Beautiful bird. They sit large wingspan. Seven foot. They have a visual acuity of a mile away. Sixty to one kill ratio. Their nests are usually five foot by five foot, weighing about a ton. Amazing, and, right? Yeah, they're just amazing bird, and they actually fly the highest elevation. 
very sacred in the native culture. They're sacred because they are considered to be a messenger. They carry the prayers of our humanness up to the creator. And once a prayer has been delivered, oftentimes the feathers release. A beautiful thing. That is beautiful. But how does that relate to humans dealing with grief? They rise above it. They fly above the storm. And how does that work? To me, it signifies avoidance because I'm going to keep busy. Our society says, let's go back to work. I'll start maybe working 50, 60 hours a week instead of 40. Oh, one cocktail will be all right. Uh, two's, well, three's okay. Well, four, I'll be, I'll be feeling good after four. I'll numb it out. That's where that addiction thing comes into play. You know, and it I'm sneaks with, up on people like It sneaks too. up. It's just, I'm just trying to numb it away. Mm-hmm. Just and to feel better. People just, just to, want relief. Right, because it's so painful. So you have the turtle that isolates. You have the eagle that avoids. Neither is going to help you in the understanding and processing the grief, but the third animal always will. And that is the tatanka, the buffalo, a very beautiful, misunderstood animal. And very popular in South Dakota. Very much so. Very much so. They are massive in size. They can run faster than horses. They're community-based. They're always in a herd. Rarely do you see them by themselves. And they're extremely protective of their young. Not only the parents, but the whole community is protective of their young and very sacred. It is believed that the white buffalo blended with Mother Earth to generate life. And it gave everything for survival. Food, shelter, clothing, everything you can think of. But when storms come, what do buffalo do? They go into the storm. Beautiful. Absolutely. They turn and they walk into it. And people, why? Why do they do such a thing? They found a way to survive. If I turn and walk into that grief storm, if I'm pushing into it, I promise you, you will find peace. You'll find understanding. You'll carry them with you. And that's, to me, the most powerful animal in the world. It's been one of my most favorite. My family always tease me about it. There's another town guy. I said, yeah, isn't that beautiful? And I think fear stops people. From- oh, Absolutely. But we if they feel like it will destroy them, if right. they really go into that storm. But I know those feelings can be there, but I also can see it from a different perspective. I've been blessed. I've worked with well over 100,000 people on wow. their grief journeys. I've worked with professional athletes to politicians, you name it. I've worked with everything you can imagine. But one thing that we all have in common is if we're willing to go into it, we're going to find peace. A colleague of mine, Rabbi Earl Grohlman, he's about 95 years old, a beautiful man gave me a a quote that I use often with people that I work with. And he says, death ends a life, not a relationship. I love that. And to me, that's beautiful. It is. Before we end this podcast, can you explain the exercise that you do? You did it with my family. So it was about taking, you know, a picture of our loved one and creating a frame. Yep. What I challenge people to do is to take, close their eyes and take a deep breath. And I want you to take a mental picture of your loved one, one that you want to keep forever. Once you have it, open your eyes. And then what I have them do is describe that picture to me. What are they wearing? Hair up, down, glasses, hat. You know, what's their facial? What's their affect? Are they smiling? Most of the times they're smiling or they're doing something stupid or Or silly or silly. And you know what I see in that, Angela? I see people brighten up because they're choosing to remember the good. And you take that picture and you place it in your heart. And then you have that conversation on paper and saying, you know, this is what's going on and random stuff. You write it down. down. There's something very important that happens when you can visually see that writing. 
I think there's something about that brain to hand to writing connection. I, I, I mean, I'm a writer, but I think for everybody. I, I think it's absolutely amazing. And I see a big change in one day. I in see one day? In one day. And so you're, you're, to, you're to think of the person, how you'd like to remember them in this picture. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the frame is? The frame is taking the memories you want to take from that writing and start to put them around that frame. And you do it another day. And you take those memories, and once you get that frame completed, you'll have peace because they're on display. And then you keep that in your heart. Yes. You talked a little bit about not necessarily, I, for a while I felt like I had a little bit of a shrine to Emily. I still kind of do maybe in my house. <laughs> but the importance of that you're carrying that person in your heart, you don't need to have. No, you already know what they look like, don't you? I've had people that had like hundreds of pictures of their loved ones, and I go, A little Gosh. excessive. Yeah. Well, I I guess everyone kind of walks it differently, but I'm going, I'm kind of confused because I always thought you knew what they look like. And it's like people that they go to the cemetery. It's it's a great thing. You feel free. If that's something that provides you comfort, feel free. Go to the cemetery. But really, where are they? I think that often, too. Sometimes I don't make it over there as, as much as I'd like. But then I think, well, she's not there anyway. And where should she be? In my heart. Right. And? Yes, in heaven, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Well, I just appreciate this conversation so much. You are just a wealth of knowledge. I feel like there we could spend hours and hours. I'd like to have you back at some point sure, on the absolutely. podcast to talk about some other things because we could talk about community-wide grief and all kinds oh, of things. I would things. love to. But I, I named my podcast Grieving Out Loud because I feel like that is a lot of what I'm doing this I last year. I appreciate that. A little yeah. over a year. Yeah. It's a play on laughing out loud. Yeah. But really, we don't talk about grief enough. We, we hide it. We run away from it. Right. And that's kind of what we shared today. And it's, I don't want people to misconceive this. It is hard. It is sad. But, you know, the grief really, the, the death doesn't define those loved ones that we have. It, divide, it stops the physical aspect of their being. But what are the gifts, the true gifts that they gave you in your life? Those memories, those legacies are always going to be there. That doesn't go away. And you can hold on to those. And those what you hold on to. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life. And by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.